today was a day in the news that obviously pissed me off. Uh, there's a lot of bad news today. I'm not going to lie, but we're going to go through it. And uh, I, I think it's worth bringing up, obviously. We have smears against Bernie Sanders. We're going to go into the history of smears against Jeremy Corbyn. Obviously, there was another mass shooting today, and uh, we're also going to touch on, because we're going into smears, uh, we're going to touch on a New York Times article that was written uh, about how Donald Trump intends to make uh, the nationality of Jews, uh, it, under the president's action, he will protect Judaism under civil rights law and empower the education department to withhold money from institutions that tolerate anti-Israel movements. There you go. So basically, uh, it's a law designed um, from the onset to challenge the BDS movement. Uh, and then we've also got uh, an interview uh, question that was asked of Noam Chomsky. Uh, so all of that and more. Stay tuned. Okay, and uh, welcome back to another episode of Sociable Socialism. I'm Joe Loudguy, and uh, obviously, as I said from the opener, today was uh, kind of a bummer, uh, kind of grim, so to speak. Uh, I make no qualms or bones about the fact that I am a pro-disarmament person. I believe we need to disarm the nation, not just the citizens, not just the police, uh, but the military as well. Now, whenever you say that, people roll their eyes and say that's never going to happen. But of course, at one point, neither was Medicare for all. And I just sort of feel like, you know, at one point, it was impossible to imagine electing a black man as the president of the United States. You know, it, it just seems to me and this is going to be a tone throughout this episode that people that want to take this pessimistic outlook, uh, I, I think need to be a little bit more honest with themselves, uh, here, or at least honest with history, uh, about the nature of things changing. I'm not going to get into that just yet, uh, because obviously we have to get through the shooting at Jersey city. Uh, so multiple people, including at least one police officer were killed in Jersey city. Uh, today, this afternoon, after two people opened fire near a convenience store. Uh, and of course, uh, the gun violence wasn't isolated, you know, to, to just today. Uh, there was another shooting, though it wasn't uh, as big. I believe it only had three people over the weekend. And I posted then, too, as I do now. Uh, and, oh, and there was that little girl that killed herself with her mom's gun that just, it was a two-year-old that found the gun and it was like a pink toy or it looked like one. And, uh, she shot herself. Little two-year-old did. Uh, because again, um, all training, all the training in the world is not going to prevent that. And this is the bit that I, I really can't stress enough to people who want to say that it's about training, it's about regulation, Nothing in the world, it was a pistol. Nothing in the world would have prevented that moment 
you could attempt to regulate against it. You know, it might have been illegal, let's say, for that woman to have that gun in the purse. Illegal. It would have gotten her license revoked, right? Well, the thing is, people do things that are illegal or they would get their licenses revoked all the time. People speed through lights all the time, okay? And everyone's saying, oh, we need to prosecute this parent. That's not going to bring the baby back. That's not going to bring that child back. If you want to get to zero gun deaths, which I think should be the obvious goal, you got to have zero guns. If you want to have multiple gun deaths a year, you have multiple guns. It's a pretty clear correlation. We have more gun deaths than any other country in the world by orders of magnitude, and we have one gun for every one person in this country. Does it stun anyone that we massacre each other at this rate? I, I just... If I have to say it for the rest of my life in the hopes that it will move public opinion, I will say it, I will explain it calmly, as I'm doing now. That doesn't mean that I do not feel a tremendous amount of grief and anger at the situation, but the fact of the matter is, I have never heard a convincing argument to explain why this is not the obvious path when every other country on earth does it, just like with Medicare for All. They have no guns or virtually no guns. They have virtually no gun deaths. It's not complicated. The only thing standing in the way is, the only argument, the argument it always comes back to is that the people that own the guns would shoot. They would go crazy. They would defend their weapons. Well, what kind of an argument is that? Are you gonna let, that's an ultimatum. That's not a choice. That is the idea that, A, they're already shooting at us. We have people dying in the streets daily. Just citizens, you know, at a cafe dying daily or at a school or a movie theater. Uh, but, oh, it would be worse than it is now. They'd shoot even more. Again, so what? Like, so what? Is this the world we're going to live in where we're held at gunpoint and our options are to let them keep the guns and keep killing people and have 33,000 deaths per year? Or we just, what, take them all away and risk a, a, a fight? an outbreak of fighting. You know what I think would happen? I think most people would make some posturing and then give up their guns. And yeah, you'd have the crazy people that would hole up in their homes like mole men and be just ready for the first person to come through. And you have drones and you have knockout gas and you have a million and one different things you can do to deal with people that want to bunker down and pretend like they're going to sit on their army or their arm armory for the rest of their lives. And then of course you have the people that would do active shooting and terrorism, which again, we already have all the time. The only way we're going to get to a safer society is by accepting that we are already being killed by these people. And the best, the best approach is to take the guns. You might bleed a little more in the moment. Maybe there's more mass shootings for a month or two months. But afterwards, none. There would never be another one. And 20, 30 years go by and you've never had another shooting. Like... Are we going to sit back 30 years from now and then go, you know what? It got a little hard there for a couple months, but man, I really, uh, I really wish we could go back to those days, have even more guns have in the streets than we did prior. Let's turn back the clock 30 years and rearm ourselves. Like, is anybody going to muse about that? No, just like in Australia after 20 years, people accept not being shot up at a school as a normalcy. They don't have book bags that are bulletproof being sold to kids. It, it, I, 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 I'm sure I'll be talking about this again, and I'll keep talking about it in the hopes that one day 
somebody else will just like learn like somebody like who can enact policy you know let me be clear you know it it it's one thing for me to have friends that agree with it and i do appreciate you know that obviously but like to have a politician say it back to me i would greatly appreciate i feel like in the united states nobody has the guts to really take on the gun culture they like not just the nra but gun culture itself and the fact that it's wrong you know, nobody seems to want to do that. They treat it as if it is this sacred cow in American politics. And again, 90% of people don't own guns and never will. So on that happy note, Bernie Sanders has been smeared by the Federalist as a anti-Semite. Uh, and you might think that's ridiculous because Bernie himself is Jewish. Uh, and you would be right. You would be right. It is. It is pretty ridiculous. But... That is the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, Melissa Bronstein wrote the article. Uh, Activist Linda Sarsour ignited a media, media firestorm when video surfaced of her telling the American Muslims for Palestine for American Muslims for Palestine conference. Israel is built on the idea that Jews are blatantly lying about is or oh phew. Israel is built on the idea that Jews are supreme to everyone else. On November twenty ninth. Sarsour adopted white supremacist rhetoric and blatantly lied about Israel. The, the realized radical notion that Jews deserve a homeland like every other people wasn't so surprising. So uh, Linda Sarsour uh, was apparently uh, a member of the Women's March. Uh, and uh, the Women's March, as I recall, uh, had its own scandals, uh, completely separate. I'm not going to really give the Federalists too much air here. Uh, it's enough to know that this is the claim they are making against her. And uh, Sarsour uh, apologized for the comments. So not only did she apologize for the comments, but she's also, she's a Bernie Sanders surrogate. And uh, he remains loyal to her. And I think he should be because I trust his character. And of course, this connection, loose as it is, uh, because of course... Uh, we have someone who apologized for something they said. We know that Israel is an apartheid state, which if you dispute that claim, as uh, Melissa Langsam Bronstein does in this article, uh, I, I mean, if you dispute it, then what are we talking about here? Because you clearly live on a different planet than I do. Uh, they dehumanize the Palestinians daily, and I will forgive somebody for one insensitive comment they said if they've apologized for it, and especially if they clarified it by saying they were speaking about Israel's current laws. Uh, that is enough for me. Their laws are abhorrent. You know what offends me is killing 13-year-old girls that are just trying to help people. That's what offends me, you know? Somebody misspeaking, I misspeak all the time. I have a history of misspeaking. I'm an idiot. I can completely sympathize with somebody who says something tactless. I get it. We all put our foots in our mouths. It's a, it's a thing. But actions matter far more than words. You apologized. You stand with Bernie Sanders, an actual Jewish man, fighting to, to help everyone in this country with policies that will make everyone's lives better off, like universal health care, like a universal housing program, like a Green New Deal. You, you decide to help this person, that's enough for me. That is enough for me. And him saying he trusts you is enough for me because he's earned my trust. What's not, what's, what's crazy, you know, what's, what just doesn't click is that 
This connection, thin as it is, is why Bernie Sanders is an anti-Semite. A Jewish man trying to help everyone who spent his entire career helping people is now somehow a self-hating Jew, as Chomsky has once been styled as as well, as anybody who criticizes Israel who is Jewish ultimately finds themselves. And I think that this is the beginning of the smear campaign against Bernie is an adoption of the smear campaign that has been levied against Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, it is the only play they seem to be able to do. Uh, they don't mind identity politics as long as it's something they can cynically use to stop any kind of leftist reforms. You know, They're fine with anti-Semitism provided it is done in a context that is useful to maintaining capital, which, you know, that's the Federalist. It is a paper that works with neo-Nazis and publishes them, and it is a protector of the wealthy oligarchic class. And I think that this article being raised, it tells me that they're going to try this. I don't know if they think it's going to be successful and this is a test case, but they're going to try to smear Bernie Sanders, a Jewish man, as anti-Semitic, because what else can they throw against him? They have nothing else. This is their play. So it's, I mean, it should go as no surprise that it came to this, uh, because today, actually, uh, I saw a, a Democratic primary uh, Quinnipiac poll uh, that had primary voters under 35 years old. Uh, support for Sanders is at 52%. So the youth vote, 52% is with Bernie Sanders. I mean, that is staggering. That's a staggering number. The second highest is Warren at 17. Next highest is Biden, then Yang, Gabbard, Buttigieg, Bloomberg. And I tweeted about this. Whatever 2% of you is supporting Bloomberg, is he paying you? And if so, how can I get in on that? I absolutely will take $2 billion. No, no I can't even say that. Uh, um, you know, actually, actually, Bloomberg, I will praise you if you gave me $2 billion. I'll praise you for the rest of my life because I would give the money away Uh and find some way to use it productively, far more productively than you. I could frankly burn it, and it would be better for the economy that I had destroyed it than that it stays in your hands. Uh, but if you're being paid, let me get back on topic by Michael Bloomberg from this poll. Uh, please, by all means, contact me. I'd be fascinated to talk with you. Uh, we could do an interview. Uh, besides that, Sanders at 52%, fascinating, incredible, the greatest, the absolute greatest news you could ask for. Uh, the the biggest voter turnout among 18 to 29-year-olds uh, was in 2018. We had a, a 20% in 2014 to 36% in 2018. That's a substantial jump. That's a substantial jump. 36% of the youth vote and that same youth vote helped win the 2018 midterms. So to have 52%, they must be getting desperate. And of course, we have this story from the Federalist. They have successfully used this smear against Jeremy Corbyn, and in the past they've used it to characterize Noam Chomsky, so why not bring it back? Why not just be a little ridiculous, float it around the Federalist, get it onto Fox News, then get it onto MSNBC? Uh, so I have an article here uh, from Ollie McAninch of the London Economic uh, Jeremy Corbyn is the most smeared politician in history. In the UK, one politician has been subject to the longest continuous smear campaign in UK history, and we are all influenced by it. Over 75% of Jeremy Corbyn media coverage factually misrepresents him. Uh, in the UK, 
the media serves an important, if not vital, function in any democratic society. But what if the bulk of the mainstream press becomes controlled by a handful of foreign-based billionaires? I'm going to switch over to my newscaster voice now. Anyone can see... Anyone can see the obvious perils of a state-controlled media, but the dangers of the extreme opposite scenario are not widely understood. In the UK and the US, we are justified to mock countries like Russia for their consumption of state-owned media and propaganda. But what we need to acknowledge is that we have serious problems of our own at the other end of the spectrum. In the last 30 years, the bulk of the UK and US media has become controlled by just a handful of corporate billionaires. Between them, they control the lion's share of mass media. Highly biased, normally with a strong political sway, and largely unregulated. In the US, restrictions were lifted in 1987 that previously required the holders of broadcast licenses to present controversial issues of public importance in a manner that was honest, equitable, and balanced. The removal of this act gave rise to news channels such as Fox News Network, owned by Rupert Murdoch, who is also the owner of News Corp in the UK. Fox grew to prominence in the 1990s as a highly partisan network, but people are increasingly increasingly questioning whether it has crossed a line and become an outright propaganda operation for the Trump administration. There is little doubt that this has been happening in the UK for decades as well. Murdoch's UK interests, such as The Sun, Newspaper, as well as other openly right-wing newspapers, have also faced criticism regarding their highly partisan reporting. Notably, the Daily Mail reporting of the Brexit campaign saw them issue a celebratory commemorative issue after the vote to leave the EU. This was followed by several ominous and threatening headlines naming politicians and judges on front covers as enemies of the people and conspirators who dared hamper Brexit on a legal or political basis. Some pointed out frighteningly similar headlines from Nazi party state propaganda in the 1930s. Now again, does all this sound kind of familiar? Is this feeling a little surreal, enemies of the people? Remember that? I remember that. Highly biased and partisan reporting has become somewhat of the norm in the UK press. Such is the power of this reporting there has been visible shifts in attitude to previously very normal ideas. Socialist concepts such as the NHS, free education for all, and social security may be proud British institutions that reflect our sense of fairness and values, yet the UK press has succeeded in making socialism a dirty word. Ask someone in the UK if they support the NHS or free education for children, and nine times out of ten they'll say, of course. Ask them if they agree with democratic socialism and you'd wonder if you just insulted their mother. The two are the same thing. Whether you agree with Brexit or not, it's hard to argue against the influence of anti-EU rhetoric that has been drip-fed to the public over the past two decades. Ironically, Boris Johnson was once the Telegraph's Brussels correspondent where he credited the creating of the Euromyth. This was the... cavalcade of stories claiming the EU was threatening Britain's way of life. You can see the list of Euromyths here in a little link. I will attach this article uh, to the episode when I drop it, so you may check it out if you so desire. Uh, He even takes credit for the straight bananas myth. Later, he was sacked for making up those stories. 
Conversely, concepts like trickle-down economics, whereby the ultra-wealthy or global corporations should be given more tax breaks than their workers because they create wealth, which trickles down to people like us, have been given credence. Bottom-up economics, despite proven to circulate more spend than allowing the wealthy to hoard it in offshore accounts, is almost a forgotten concept. Even investing in our own future through capital projects and education has been squashed in the era of austerity, while scandals of epic proportions like the Panama Papers were barely covered in the news. If our mainstream press has become a propaganda machine for the right wing, it's no wonder that the first openly socialist leader Britain has had in 20 years has been the victim of perhaps the longest continuous smear campaign ever seen against a politician in the UK. In 2016, we ran an opinion piece titled, Think Corbyn is a Loser? Oh dear, you've been brainwashed. This was referring to the amount of smear in the UK press directed at the Labour leader, but it seems things have gotten a lot worse for the UK's official leader of the opposition. No other politician in the UK has faced the sheer volume of smear that Corbyn has. This article by The Independent calculated that 75% of all press coverage of Jeremy Corbyn factually misrepresents him. When studying the last half a century of political smears, Corbyn tops the charts. Smear campaigns against him in terms of volume makes the new national newspaper attacks on the likes of Neil Kinnock, Gordon Brown, and Ed Mildebrand look like April Fool's jokes. Anyone older than 30 might remember Ed Millibrand. Milliband. Hmm. Eating a bacon sandwich on the front cover of The Sun. Those over 40 may recall the infamous It's the Sun What Want It, Headline referring to the 1992 John Major Tory victory where the tabloid had led an increasingly personal campaign against then-Labor leader Neil Kinnock. Culminating in the famous Election Day headline, If Kinnock wins today, will the last person to leave Britain please turn out the lights? The smears on Corbyn are almost daily, which perhaps demonstrates what a threat Corbyn is to the proprietors of those particular media outlets. The list of smears is simply too long to list, but a small selection of some of the more ridiculous ones I am about to go through with you. And uh, what we have here is a list of 11 smears. Number one being he doesn't support the England football team. Uh, Number two... He met a communist spy during the Cold War. Number three, he's a Marxist extremist intent on bankrupting Britain. This was actually populated by The Sun, uh, by the way, speaking of right-wing news. Uh, He called Hezbollah and Hamas friends. Uh, He thinks the death of Osama bin Laden was a tragedy. Jesus. He didn't go back in time to chastise his evil great-great-grandfather. He rides a communist bicycle. He wants Britain to abolish its army. He stole sandwiches meant for veterans. He danced on his way to the Cenotaph, uh, Cenotaph on Remembrance Sunday. Hmm. He complained that jihadi John had been killed. Uh, so that he, uh, again, this is misleading because what the labor leader really wanted to see was the terrorist face justice. Uh, responding to the suspected killing of Mr. Mwazi, Mr. Corbyn said it appears Mohammed Mwazi has been held to account for his callous and brutal crimes. However, it would have been far better for us all if he had been held to account in a court of law. These events only underline the necessity of accelerating international efforts under the auspices of the UN to bring an end to the Syrian conflict as part of a comprehensive regional settlement. That's actually a fine answer. It's a perfectly fine answer. Jesus Christ. So, and of course, that he's an anti-Semite. So these are the smears that are levied against Jeremy Corbyn on a daily basis. Uh, 
Ask 10 people over 30 what they think of Jeremy Corbyn, and chances are you'll hear some pretty damning responses. But interestingly, most of the negative responses merely parrot headlines seen in the Mail, Sun, Express, and Telegraph. You're hard to put. You're hard pushed to hear something new. Corbyn hasn't even been saved from the bastion of independent journalism, the BBC. The London Economic reported news that one of Britain's leading uh, barristers has evidence of BBC bias against Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. Jolyon Magwam, director of Good Law Project, alleged that the BBC has indulged in showing coded negative imagery of Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn since his election in 2015. Even this week, BBC Panorama produced what is widely regarded as a hatchet job on Jeremy Corbyn and anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. Last year, the London Economic reported that over $2 million of taxpayer cash was spent by the Conservative government funding an Infowars unit which smeared Corbyn and Labour. Government spending taxpayer money to smear the opposition. It is something you might expect in a banana republic or an authoritarian state, yet it's happening right here in the UK. I actually had to pause for a moment because that was so stunning to me. Wow. Okay, well, we can cut it there. Uh, You get the idea. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has been the victim of a tremendous smear job. 75% of all news brought against him is, in fact, misrepresenting him. And then, of course, you add the uh, never-ending right-wing austerity programs in the country, further exacerbating tensions. You have the push uh, towards Brexit, uh, and Corbyn's answer is the only one that isn't going to harm the UK irrevocably. Now, I am not invested as much in the UK's election as I am here, only because I live here. Uh, I imagine for any lefties in the UK, this is a tough time and you have my sympathies. Uh, I can't imagine how frustrating it must be to have all the major news networks turned against you. I can't. I can't imagine it. It's how it is over here. Thankfully, though, Bernie Sanders is Jewish, so I think they're going to have a much harder time smearing him with that same play, which brings us back to where we started. Uh, When you allow the right wing to smear your guy, when you tolerate it, with anything besides yelling at the top of your lungs, as I think the Bernie people actually do a really good job at on Twitter, like just flat out ratioing anybody who tries to come after the people that we support, anyone who tries to truck up muck, we ratio them. And I think that's a great way of shutting down their narratives and preventing them from getting much larger than they necessarily could. Uh, I'm not sure where this one on Bernie is going to go. My hope is, and we ratioed the Federalists pretty bad, uh, my hope is this is where it ends. Uh, But I I really can't say. They're going to pull out all the stops to stop him, and they don't have any other options. They, they have to resort to some real muckraking because everything else they've tried, like he has three houses. I mean, again, what a pathetic smear that was, right? I mean, just like with Corbyn, supposedly he doesn't support uh, England's football team. You know, it, it, it's, it's absurd. Uh, they will throw anything at you to make you think that you're dirty, uh, that there's something wrong with you, that you're not the way to go no matter what it takes, you know, if they have to lie 10 million times, eventually some of it will start to permeate the public. And they'll assume, well, if even 10% of what they say is true, maybe, you know, maybe this guy is not so good. It's, yeah, wow. 
Continuing on with the article, every freelance journalist in the country knows that any dirt on Corbin or his closest allies will fetch a decent sum of money from certain newspapers. Whilst freelancing, I personally received an order from a journalist at one of the UK's leading newspapers telling me, we'll take anything you've got on Corbin." The problem for the newspapers is that Corbin is actually pretty boring in terms of news. There really isn't much dirt to dig up. As a media outlet, it isn't easy to smear a popular politician who held his seat for approaching 40 years and has dedicated his life to peace and democratic socialism, standing up for the working class. Hacks in the press rooms have been tasked by their superiors with siphoning through decades-old leaflets, newsletters, videos, and interviews to try and pull out a line or two that may, if taken out of context, portray Corbin in a negative light. Hence why a continuous newsreel of loosely interpreted Corbin, the terrorist sympathizer, and Corbin, the anti-Semite stories, are shoved down our throats. Most people, even those who don't like Corbin, are baffled, if not bored, by the continual headlines. Whilst anti-Semitism, racism, and Islamophobia exist in almost every political party, and undoubtedly needs to be challenged at every level, if you take the care to look at Corbyn's constituency, work, and history, even to suggest that he is in any way personally hostile to or prejudiced against Jews is almost laughable. In a political period where we have leaders and high-profile politicians like Trump and Boris overtly making racist comments and failing to condemn racist actions, it makes the whole Corbyn smear seem even more absurd, Yet the mud sticks, and it keeps coming. Some Remainers believe that the motivation to get out of the EU for many of the ultra-rich was to escape from the EU's forthcoming clampdown on tax avoidance. If there is truth in that, then imagine the threat Corbyn poses to those individuals. The bigger problem for Corbyn now is that the centralists in the Labour Party fear that the media propaganda machine will never let up on Corbyn, and that without mass media or mass mainstream support, he will never get elected. This would be unthinkable against perhaps the most disastrous and unpopular conservative government in living memory. They are mindful that the media does sway the voters, and today more than 60 Labour peers put their names to an advent advert in The Guardian accusing Corbyn of failing to tackle anti-Semitism. Tony Blair bowed down to the power of the media moogles and got them on side, but at what cost? Whether or not you support Corbyn or agree with his politics, we need to ask ourselves if this is the kind of media we want. It's up to us to reject the spin and bias and seek accurate and truthful reporting. So, again, you know, this is... This is what he's up against over there. And I actually find that quite fascinating that the ultra-rich were pressuring, or at least pressured, uh, to get the UK and Brexit passed uh, because they were afraid of the EU's forthcoming clampdown on tax avoidance. I mean, again, it is about their money. Uh, Capitalism is terrified of socialism. It's terrified of the idea of distributing resources equally and democratically amongst the population. And if you have a way out of that, you're going to take it. Now, if that way out is starting a civil war uh, so that you can own literal human property, history shows us that you are prepared to do that. But you do need to get some actual people out there to fight the war. You do need people to actually vote, for instance, uh, to leave the EU. And I guess what I'm hoping is that Corbyn is going to be as good at getting out uh, longtime apathetic voters uh, who did not see the political system as a way for them to their or their lives to be improved. I hope in the same way 
that Bernie has done this, or I hope that Bernie has done this. All evidence points to Bernie doing this. I hope that that is how it is going in the UK. Uh, the news that I hear from English lefties is not what I would say optimistic. Like, for example, this piece here, I wouldn't say that this is uh, particularly optimistic. I would definitely think it's honest. But, you know, I, over here, I think that there's a fair number of lefty pieces that say, yeah, Sanders can win this thing. And I personally think it's more likely than not, given the fact that he has such a solid foundation to build upon. And at this point, a lot of polls have him coming out in first, beating out Biden. So I would be very surprised if he didn't win three out of the first four states. And I think he's going to definitely win California. So at that point, it would be very, very difficult, given the amount of coverage that just winning those states is going to produce. It'd be very difficult to see somebody challenging him. And someone who did challenge him would have to be able to maintain a challenge that could sufficiently sway enough of the electorate. Now, I'm not sure if this is going to happen. Uh, I... Maybe I have more optimism in the American people than is warranted, but I actually think that we're at a point where we're ready for change. Uh, I think that Trump's election was sort of proof of that, that people were so apathetic to the system that they'd rather not vote even to stop this crazy reality star narcissist. And now we have the highest youth vote turnout ever conglomerating around one candidate. I believe in 2020, this will pay out. I think that that combined with the hate against Trump and his overall just ineptness is going to be our ticket forward. As I said at the beginning, Trump is signing an order targeting anti-Semitism on college campuses uh, by the New York Times. This article, by the way, is disgusting. This New York Times piece is disgusting. It was written by Peter Baker and Maggie Haberman. Uh, I am not going to read all of it like I did the last article. Just know that they really, really try to both sides this whole BDS movement. They really try to go, some people say that Israel is being attacked and that this is anti-Semitic. Others say that you're taking away the Palestinian human rights, but some people feel like you are attacking Israel. So both sides, which is ridiculous. Boycott, divestment, and sanctions is not racist is the idea to not do business with israel as long as israel has an apartheid regime which it absolutely does president trump plans to sign an executive order on wednesday targeting what he sees as anti-semitism on college campuses by threatening to withhold federal money from educational institutions that fail to combat discrimination three administration officials said on tuesday the order will effectively interpret judaism as a race or nationality not a religion Blah, 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 blah. In recent years, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel has roiled some campuses, leaving some Jewish students feeling unwelcomed or attacked. In signing the order, Mr. Trump will use his executive power to take action where Congress has not, essentially replicating bipartisan legislation that has stalled on Capitol Hill for several years. Prominent Democrats have joined Republicans in promoting such a policy change to combat anti-Semitism as well as the boycott Israel movement. Now, isn't that interesting? replicating bipartisan legislation that has stalled on Capitol Hill for years. Why is it stalled, do you think? Is it because Mitch McConnell doesn't want to pass this? He's a Republican. Trump's in the White House. Why did it stall? It says it has several prominent Democrats have joined Republicans. Notice that. So what we're hearing here is the corporate Dems and the sellout Dems and the Steny Hoyer Dems uh, 
are joining Republicans and promoting this switch as a way to stand up to the BDS movement, as a way to uh, make it illegal for you to exhibit free speech on a college campus. It's quite ironic that the right wing is doing this, frankly, given how much they cry about their free speech privileges on college campuses. It really, irony is so dead in this area. We're going to need a whole new word to describe it. Uh, but critics complain that such a policy could be used to stifle free speech and legitimate opposition to Israel's policies towards Palestinians in the name of fighting anti-Semitism. The definition of anti-Semitism to be used in the order matches the one used by the State Department and by dozens of other nations, but has been criticized as too open-ended and sweeping. See, right there, that framing of that little blurb is completely in favor of the State Department. It's like, no, the definition is the one that matches the State Department. Well, I don't agree with the State Department then. Is, is, it, is it the definition that matches the UN? Is it the definition that actually fits? No, it's the one that the State Department agrees with. And by dozens of other nations, by dozens, not a majority of other nations, just dozens, vague numbers. For instance, it describes as an anti-Semitic denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination and offers as an example of such behavior claiming that the existence of the state of Israel is a racist endeavor. Yusuf Munayer, the executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, said Mr. Trump was trying to silence Palestinian rights activism by equating opposition to Israel's treatment of Palestinians with anti-Semitism. Quote, Israeli apartheid is a very hard product to sell in America, especially in progressive spaces, Mr. Munayar said. Munayar said. And realizing this, many Israeli apartheid apologists, Trump included, are looking to silence a debate they know they can't win. Administration officials who insisted on anonymity to discuss the order before its official announcement said it was not intended to squelch free speech. That is literally what you can't. Words have meaning. Like, you can't just go at the opener, yeah, it's designed to stop people from bringing up BDS because we are saying BDS is anti-Semitic. Why is it anti-Semitic? Because we say so. Because the State Department says so. That's why it's anti-Semitic. And then, later in the same thing, we're going, yeah, but it's not designed to squelch free speech. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That is literally what it is doing. You said it was what it was doing. The White House worked in tandem with some Democrats and activist groups that have been critical of the president to build support for the move. Again, it's not naming names. It's not giving you Democrats. It's not giving you the groups. It's just telling you some prominent groups feel this way. Almost all of them are pro-Israel, but some are saying it. Among those welcoming the move on Tuesday was a Jonathan Greenblatt, the chief executive of the Anti-Defamation League, who said the group recorded its third highest level of anti-Semitic episodes in the United States last year. Quote, Of course we hope it will be enforced in a fair manner, he said, but the fact of the matter is we see Jewish students on college campuses and Jewish people all over being marginalized. The rise of anti-Semitic incidents is not theoretical, it's empirical, it's largely been driven and defended, by the man in the White House who said there are many people on both sides, many good people on both sides about neo-Nazis in my state, in the state of Virginia that I live in. He said this, not before he was president, while he was president. And we're having a conversation about this man's motives and saying, of course, we hope it will be enforced in a fair manner. I, how do you capture this? I, is he corrupt? Is that, is, is Jonathan Greenblatt corrupt? Is he stupid? 
I, I truly don't know. You know, it, I, I don't know how you can say that sentence with a straight face of the man that literally has endorsements from David Duke, from the Ku Klux Klan, from neo-Nazis, Richard Spencer. Like, they've endorsed him. These are, am I taking crazy pills? David Crone, a former chief of staff to Senator Harry Reid, always a bastard of ethics and morals, of Nevada when he was Senate Democratic leader, has lobbied for years for such a policy change and prayed Mr. Trump, praised Mr. Trump for taking action. I know people are going to criticize me for saying this, Mr. Crone said, but I have to give credit where credit is due. Mr. Reid helped push for the legislation similar to the order called the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act of 2016. It passed the Senate in December 2016 unanimously, but died in the House as that Congress ended. It has been reintroduced by Democrats and Republicans, but has lingered. Mr. Crone continued to work on the issue after Mr. Reid retired and reached out through a mutual friend last summer to Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and senior advisor. I mean, again, I don't have to go down this whole thing. You can certainly go down it. But the fact of the matter is uh, they are trying to spin this as if, well, look, Trump's been accused of being anti-Semitic, but this is definitely not anti-Semitic. Again, there is more types of racism. Why is the Palestinian, the very mention of the Palestinians restricted to a paragraph? Like almost not brought up at all. We mentioned the rise of anti-Semitic attacks in the country. We mention how Jewish people are marginalized. We fail to mention by which group is that being driven. The far right. The very people that Donald Trump is virtue signaling to. Both in Israel and over here with this kind of crackdown on free speech. Which is what it is. I mean, it's disgusting that the New York Times could print this. This just sycophantic gaslighting garbage that they're putting out there as a way to make people feel more comfortable with the free speech and the first amendment just being trampled upon thank you new york times and thank you england and your many media organizations for smearing jeremy corbyn thank you thank you for all of these things (sighs) moving on to something that will not make me as angry i hope Uh, We're going to get into a question that was asked of Noam Chomsky. I'm going to play the clip uh, where he gives his full response uh, so you'll be able to hear what he says. And uh, then I'm going to go into why I disagree with it and uh, what it is that I think, and this might be audacious to say, but what it is I think that Noam Chomsky is missing. Uh, Take a listen. So now, now I want to turn to U.S. politics. Um, you, you have um, expressed sentiments of support for for Bernie Sanders. Um, what what are some ways that perhaps his outlook might fall short? Um, I know you've called you've described him as a New Deal Democrat. Um, how are some way? What are some ways that he can change to uh, to fit more to express more the needs of the American people? Well, I think it's first of all kind of academic. The chances that Sanders will win the nomination, I think, are not great. The main reason is the, this tremendous attack on him. Just take a look at how he's treated in the media. Uh, there's actually, a, it's pretty obvious just from reading, but there's a good study about it by uh, In These Times, they published a detailed study, factual study of how the media have been handling Sanders. 
So I think uh, all stops will be pulled to make sure that he doesn't get the nomination. If he gets the nomination, the attacks will be wild. We'll get the whole Republican propaganda machine going after this uh, Jewish uh, atheist, uh, you know, wants to kill all the whites, and on and on. You know. The chances he could be elected are pretty small. But if he does get elected, miracle, he won't have Congress. How are you going to win Congress? The Congress is, the U.S. electoral system is structurally constructed so that the uh, reactionary elements have an overwhelming advantage. Like in the last election, uh, I think the Democrats won Congress, Senate by about 12 million votes, but they lost the Senate. That happens all the time. Uh, these, there's a structural effect of, that maximizes the effect of the rural, uh, white, uh, conservative, uh, you know, where's our America and traditional vote. Uh, Democratic votes tend to be concentrated in the cities, which most of them are lost, you know, plus the gerrymandering and the voter suppression and everything else. So you have to, it has to be an enormous Democratic victory for them to win Congress, which is unlikely. Furthermore, even if you win Congress, uh, most of the people elected from the, uh, among the Democrats are basically what they call blue dog Democrats, moderate Republicans. They're not going to support uh, Sanders' plans. On top of all of that, there's a very, the fact is that uh, U.S. politics are dominated by wealth. Uh, we see that all the time. Uh, the wealthy basically control the legislation. So uh, the barriers against carrying out progressive legislation are quite high. So it could happen, but it would require an enormous popular mobilization, the kind that took place in the 1930s that enabled the New Deal measures to be carried. Now, of course, most of you are going to be familiar with Noam Chomsky. He is a respected, brilliant political dissident. Uh, this is not designed to be a criticism of him particularly. Uh, I, I'm more criticizing this mentality because I hear this mentality a lot and I, I don't agree with it. And it, not just because it's defeatist and even were it true, it wouldn't be a good way of thinking about things. That's true. Uh, because you do need to have some kind of motivation to fight back, which again, you know, not Chomsky has. It's not like he's saying don't try. He's just saying that this is not likely. I disagree. I think it is actually likely. Now, I also think that it is uh, not positive to assume failure, but all of this is a matter of perspective. And in Chomsky's case, nothing he said there is inherently counterfactual. Uh, Per se, he's right. You would need to have a coalition that we have not seen in 60, 70, 80 years. But I do believe that coalition exists and has been born anew in the Bernie Sanders candidate, candidacy. I believe that uh, his movement is proof that, that that is alive. The the 4 million individual donations going to him is higher than they've... It, it, it's a number that staggers in comparison uh, with what history has shown us. It's or it's staggeringly high compared to what history has shown us. It's shattered records is what I'm trying to articulate. 
<laughs> the point is, is uh, not only is his com- uh, his coalition the most diverse, uh, 50% men, 50% women, more women, frankly, support him than men, uh, but it is also the most ethnically diverse and religiously diverse. I mean, this is a coalition that spans across cultural identity to get down to the fact that we are all workers and all deserve to share in the bounties of this country, not to be denied having a fair uh, shot at life, just a chance to succeed. And he speaks to that. And I do believe that he has created that coalition. And I think there's evidence that he has created this coalition just from polling, from the statistics that go into it, from the amount of individual donations and volunteers that he has that, again, is just staggering by this point in the campaign. I, I just think that if, if this is not what it looks like, if this is not what it looks like, how much more would we need to see of it? Like what what else is Chomsky expecting? Because we also have unions across the country striking for better pay and non-union workers, whether we're talking about McDonald's uh, or, or Disney or, or Disney might be unionized. I don't believe they are, though. Uh, again, it, it you have Uber. Also, like we have striking workers across the country attempting to fight back. The movement is very much alive and it is very much against the elites. And Bernie speaks to that movement in a way that no other candidate does with a genuine uh, empathy that no other candidate has and a worldview that I believe is necessary. Frankly, if you want to have a kind of progressive agenda succeed, uh, it is one that is honest about the role capital has to play in all of this and the fact that wealth inequality is at the root of all of this. And I understand Chomsky's point of view as history would teach us that the media is against him and that it would be unprecedented in American politics. He calls it a miracle. I think that we're going to create that miracle because the miscalculation I feel Chomsky makes here, and it's an easy one to make, it is the miscalculation that nothing will change. I see this from individuals like David Cleon. I see this to a much, in a much dumber way. I see this in the Jimmy Doors of the world, uh, where it is just the assumption that because the system is corrupt, the system cannot change. And you're correct. Uh, the system is corrupt. It's broken, and it does need to be replaced by something better. But the idea that it cannot change, I think, is a historical. I think that we've seen. 40 to 50 years of brutality committed against the working class and eventually there has to be a pushback. And I don't know what that pushback looks like, but if I had to guess, it would look a lot like what we're seeing with Bernie Sanders' candidacy. Now, I don't know that he's going to win. I believe he will win. I feel very confidently that he will win. Uh, I would bet money and have bet money, actually, that he's going to win against people that are much more centrist than me and think I'm a crazy person. And maybe I am. But I think that the evidence is there to at least say that this is not the long-shot miracle that Chomsky makes it out to be. And I think that there's plenty of evidence uh, to suggest that, in fact, it is even likely that this is going to happen. But it all depends on your perspective. If Chomsky wants to look at the history of American politics, sure, yes, there is a tremendous amount of established power arrayed against Sanders And even if he wins, I have said this, I don't believe he will get his agenda passed in the first two years. I believe he will be met with nonstop obstruction from the Democrats as much as from the Republicans, and maybe even more so. I believe that individuals like Steny Hoyer are going to, and uh, hopefully we're going to primary and remove him, 
don't get me wrong, I don't want Steny Hoyer to be there. I'm just using him as an example. Uh, but individuals with that sort of sellout mentality, uh, I see as the next wave of enemies we're going to have to take on. Individuals that uh, would agree that we need to have bills that clamp down on BDS. For instance, uh, as Tenny Hoyer uh, has sponsored and supported these efforts and has spoken uh, at length about uh, how there is no room for anti-Semites in the Democratic Party when referring to Ilhan Omar, another individual like Corbyn that they have attempted to smear. And, of course, someone who has also uh, joined Bernie Sanders as a uh, endorse, endorser, I guess. He, she endorsed Bernie Sanders. Uh, but Chomsky saying that there is no hope, that it's a miracle, and then describing this coalition that would need to exist for it to happen, I think it, it, it's like he does not acknowledge the coalition as if, as if it's real. It's like he doesn't acknowledge what we're doing as if it's real. And I just feel like that speaks to... I mean, he's 91, you know, maybe it depends on what media you peruse. I certainly don't think he gets his media from YouTube. So maybe that's the root of it. You know, I don't know where he gets his news from. Uh, I assume he gets it from newspapers. Uh, but factual, or uh, truthfully, I, I, I wouldn't even be able to tell you. The man is 91. He can get his news from wherever he damn well pleases uh, at this point in his life, given what he's written on. You know, he's the author of Manufacturing Consent among 500 other books. I mean, the man is legendary in leftist circles uh, for speaking truth to power. I just think that he is miscalculating here. I think that he is looking at this very pessimistically and not with any actual current data to distinguish what is different about Sanders' candidacy. He certainly seems to agree that Bernie is different. He certainly agrees that Bernie himself is not... Uh, the common breed of current politicians in America, he just doesn't seem to think very much of us, of the movement, is the impression I guess I got from that. And that's very disappointing to me, and I'm looking to prove him wrong. I, I hope you will join me in proving him wrong, because I spent the last two days from 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock making calls. Uh, most of them, I'll admit, are hang-ups, or they don't answer, they go to a voicemail. Uh, so I get it if you feel like this is boring or if you're intimidated by the idea of talking with strangers. Uh, I can appreciate both of those things. Uh, cold calling is not fun, and I used to work in a call center. So when I worked there, I was my least favorite thing was cold calling people because there's not, there's no reason in the world why you would conceivably enjoy speaking with a stranger that you've randomly been thrown to talking to. Uh when they don't want to speak to you. I, I can see why that would be high pressure, but it's important. This is the kind of stuff that can really make a difference. I had a 20-minute conversation with a veteran uh, who mentioned how he had been insecure in his health and homing homes. He'd been housing insecure his entire life for like 20 years. Uh, he was so sick from his war injuries all the time that he ended up being a truck driver because at least if he's sick, he's sick in the car or in the truck, and he can keep on driving. And he said that he still had to take off sick days every now and again because his health would not allow him to keep working. And he would lose jobs because of this. And he fought for years, uh, even mentioning an encounter he had with Amy Klobuchar. Uh, he Supposedly, according to him, he begged her uh, to help him. 
uh, to uh, help better fund uh, veterans health care. And this was in Minnesota. Uh, now, I don't know uh, the details of the interaction besides what he told me. Maybe Amy Klobuchar would regale a different tale. Um, but it broke my heart to hear this individual speak. And I mentioned Bernie's long record of not just fighting for health care, but fighting for veterans. And there's a whole page dedicated to Bernie's website to go into this. And we talked for 20 minutes. And while I didn't win him over, I put a seed there that wasn't there before. By the end of it, I mean, at the beginning, he had told me that he did not think there was any politicians in Washington that stood up for us, that stood up for the people, that would stood up, that had, could stand up for him, that they would all tell you that they would support the troops, but then turn away with apathy and not help you with the actual health concerns of your service. And I hope that he considers voting for Sanders come March 3rd in Minnesota. I truly hope that I, I at least planted a seed that will showcase uh, the fact that Sanders stands alone as a champion of health care and basic human dignity uh, for us and for the world. I mean, he could be a standard that we could hold other politicians to in other countries. He could be a jumping off point, not just in this country with taking on the Congress, but taking on the Senate and then even taking on uh, corrupt governments worldwide. If we manage to get Lula back into power in Brazil, it, it just there's a lot of ifs. Obviously, Corbyn in England is a huge if right now. Frankly, I don't think it's as likely as Bernie winning given what Corbyn has to deal with and the fact that the smears have had an easier time sticking, I suppose. Just because he is not a man of Jewish descent, it's easier to label him as an anti-Semite. But I believe we're going to win, and I hope you all will join me in proving Noam Chomsky wrong and showcasing that this movement actually is what he describes. It is that prerequisite to getting things changed, because he's right. We probably aren't going to capture the Congress. I don't think Bernie's going to get his job... Uh, handed to him on a silver platter once he's president. I think that it's going to take executive orders to get a lot of the early stuff passed, and I think we're going to have to primary the entire time we're in office. But by the end of his eight years, the world will be very different. We will have changed the world. And we are going to do that because we are that movement. I have no doubt that working together as a coalition, we can become something that stands as a, a triumph in history. We, we will be a movement that defines the parameters of the next century. And I'm so excited to walk together with all of you in solidarity towards a better future for all of us. Thank you for tuning in to Sociable Socialism. We'll be back next Tuesday. Have a good night.